You're listening to 100 p.m. Episode 35. You're listening to 100 p.m., the show where we're interviewing 100 expert product people from startups to enterprise and everything in between to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product management. Today I'm talking to Dan Pudsedley, VP of Product at Pivotal Tracker. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com, the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm Susanna Bate, product coach, startup mentor, and host of today's show. Let's dive right in and say hello to Dan Podsedley. Uh, <laughs> we're just getting started. Uh, yeah, we're just going to get started here. So my name is uh, Dan Podsedley. I work at Pivotal and have been with Pivotal ever since the beginning of what it was previously called, which was Pivotal Labs, a little consultancy in San Francisco back in the mid-2000s. Started as, a, as one of the original, I guess, principles, but mostly as an engineer working on projects where we build software for, for other companies. And over the years have done a lot of different things, uh, a lot to do with introducing an agile culture to teams that were, you know, new to it, whether it was a startup or a larger company. And uh, over time, I got involved with uh, our little internal tool that we built for, you know, these projects that we worked on for our clients, Pivotal Tracker. And that became gradually my full-time job. And I went from being an engineer working on the product to being the sort of part-time product manager uh, to being a full-time manager when we launched it as a, as a real product, when we went from a tool to a product. And I've been doing that ever since then, which was, uh, I want to say, about five, six years ago when it became a product. So these days, I manage it as a product. I'm the VP and general manager, which means I manage every aspect of the product, but I'm very heavily, uh, I guess, biased toward the product aspect of it. So I am the head of product. I manage multiple PMs and designers. I also indirectly manage the engineering team, as well as the sort of business aspect of the product and it's in the P&O. You said a lot about Tracker. I want to start by going back into your path. Did you begin as a developer? Was that your original marketable skill? That is where I began. Um, right after school, I got involved in uh, some really interesting software projects uh, as part of the co-op program I was in during school. And uh, yeah, I mean that, that's what I was doing for years. Uh, worked on a number of different projects across different companies. And uh, that's, so when Pivotal began, and this is actually how I met some of the, the other principals or founders of Pivotal Labs, uh, we were all working on these uh, big uh, OO projects that were trying to replace legacy systems because this is about the time when uh, Y2K was, was happening. And this is when we discovered Agile and at the time this kind of new emerging methodology as it was called extreme programming, which involved you know pairing and test driving. And, uh, and so that's what kind of led me into my, my current situation of Pivotal, right? So I was a developer, a developer for a while on, on client projects within Pivotal, and then started to pick up the, the PM piece as part of uh, the tracker experience. But were you, was Pivotal just sort of there from the beginning of your career, or you worked in other, as a developer for other organizations before? And I'm sure it's hard for you to remember life before Pivotal at this point. It, it has been a while. It definitely has been a while. But no, I, I spent a, a number of years outside of, uh, just in, in, in the industry. My, I started as a co-op student at a bank in Toronto. Um, I worked at, uh, 
what was it, uh, a big dog food company in St. Louis as a developer um, on some of their projects there. I also worked at IBM, through IBM on a number of client projects, including AT&T in New Jersey. Um, so I, I did quite a, I think I had about seven or eight projects under my belt as a developer primarily um, before joining Pivotal. We, we did an interview with some of the folks from Pivotal Labs uh, out at the Santa Monica office here on the show, and we've talked a little bit about it, but you know, Pivotal Labs is a product consultancy, so you are part of the founding team of that product. I mean, it's huge now, Labs. That's Everywhere. right, it is. Um, well, Labs and, and, and especially the, the larger Pivotal, right? There's a little bit of confusion around what Pivotal stands for, uh. right? In my mind, Pivotal... The real Pivotal um, was Pivotal Labs, which was which is what introduced or, or kind of came up with this this culture of, of how we work, right? Very, you know, strong emphasis on on small teams, right? We were doing this cross-functional, balanced team uh, way of of building software even before those terms existed, right? It just made sense to us that the best way to build software is as a small team working together, right? With everybody having this shared understanding of what's important, what we're working on today, where we're going. Um, and that was kind of the basis of Pivotal. That's what really made Pivotal what it was, right? Is, is forming these teams, bringing some of these XP or, or Agile methodology approaches to it as well, or especially the engineering practices in particular, test-driven development and pairing, that was huge. Like we, we brought those together. If you, if, you, if you take TDD or test-driven development and pairing, and do that as a small team with clear priorities, right? And a sort of customer in the room experience, like great things happen out of that, right? And we had lots of success with that model, just focusing on those basics, right? We used different, you know, different languages. We did Java, we did Ruby, we did a bunch of other things, but the common element was the small team, the highly involved product manager, although it wasn't even called that at the time, at least we didn't refer to it as a product manager. We called it like the customer. Um, and there's a, you know, that, that concept of the customer becoming the product manager, working with the customer evolved over the years, but the basis still remains at, at the larger Pivotal now. We have thousands of people in the company. It isn't just Pivotal Labs anymore, Pivotal Labs, the consultancy, but that's a big part of it. I think they're up to about, you know, a thousand people, if not, if not more, spread around the, the globe, really. I think there are at least, you know, 18 to 20 Pivotal Labs offices these days across all the bigger cities. The core culture is still very, very much about the the small team with clear priorities, right? With everybody just kind of pitching in as they need to, working together, pairing, and not just between developers. Like now you see PMs and developers pairing. You have designers pairing with developers and PMs. Like this is what sort of made Pivotal what it was. And now we have all these other products within the larger Pivotal organizations. And it took a, a while to to get that culture to spread and, and, and you know, be sort of perceived as, as the right way of doing things, you know, beyond the, the labs part of the organization. But now it's been embraced really everywhere. So every team at Pivotal is now working the same way that we started working as, as that little Pivotal Labs in a little tiny room above, a, I think it was like a psychiatrist office in an in a old building in San Francisco. I don't want to take for granted that everybody listening understands number one, agile, right? I think agile is hard and even organizations who are agile or purport to be agile struggle with that. And, and we can talk more about that. But for teams doing it the right way, as you described, this, this small teams approach, this integrated approach, why is that the right way? What was some of that foundational ideology? Like, take us back in time to 
what was so groundbreaking about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a, and I think it's worth clarifying, like, there is no right way, right? I mean, I, I've been in this pivotal world for, for years now, right? So I have a perspective that's been honed by that experience. And from that experience, um, you know, I have some opinions about <laughs> what works and what doesn't work, right? But it doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's the only way of doing it, right? But, but again, from that experience, from our, you know, history here, and even the word agile, agile has, you know, I don't know whether it's lost its meaning or it's become such an overloaded term that it could mean so many different things. What does right? it mean to you? For, for me, I think the, the difference, or if you look at like, well, how where Pivotal has been and what it really tries to encourage. And, and to be honest, a lot of it is just more of the same. Like we've kind of had the same mental model or the same you know, perspective for, for years. And, and a lot of it is just common sense, right? Like bring common sense to the table. <laughs> and don't forget common sense because sometimes we do forget that, right? And sometimes we do, you know, just do things because we've always been doing it the same way, right? Or because, you know, the methodology or the book that we read about how to work told us to do so, right? For us, it's, it's just really been, you know, we're not, we're not smart enough to, to know how to do it, right? So let's just, let's just slow down. Let's break everything down into small pieces, right? It's really hard to, to work or to organize into a team of 30 people, right? Like how do 30 people work on some large project. We don't know. It's really difficult, so let's not even try. Let's just break everything down into simple, small components, right? And that, that's true in, in development, like when you're writing code, it's all about, you know, finding the smallest unit of, of progress, right? Whether it's a little function or a little object or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, just kind of take the same approach to projects or building products, right? break everything down until it's really small and it becomes really easy, right? And so teams have to be small in order to, to be able to execute and collaborate together, right? People working by themselves, I mean, it's really easy to, to do work by yourself. If somebody gives you some clear instruction, you can go off in the corner, you know, whether it's writing some code or preparing some sort of a document or whatever, right? But most software products are, are bigger than the individual person, so we have to work in groups. Um, there's just a lot of communication that has to happen when building something you know bigger than one web person can do, and especially around software. So we have to work as teams. We simply don't know how to operate as a team of you know 20 or 30. So we make sure that everything is broken down into teams of you know four to six, right? Well, you have like one person who is empowered to make decisions about what to work on, right? So this is typically the PM, right? Sort of prioritizing a backlog, uh, and we have a relatively small number of developers because you can't have more than a certain number of developers working out of one prioritized backlog. It gets crazy. You start to have you know, people stepping on each other's toes. It just gets hard to manage, right? So really, it's that, that art of decomposition that you know, we start to get good at, and it's decomposing everything into you know, these, uh, these small elements. I would say not trusting ourselves with the, the code that we write. Therefore, we write tests first because we don't trust ourselves. We don't know how to write code that has no bugs or that actually does what you know it was in intended to do so therefore let's write the test first to make sure that you know we're going in the right direction and so i think it's a there's a common theme of you know making things as simple as possible as small as possible you know writing down the intent before we go off and and you know write some code um, etc well it's interesting because you know a lot of people are connecting now with this idea of validated learning it's it's yeah. it's a framework or an ideology that's gaining popularity 
in the context of management, in particular product management. And in a lot of ways, it's essentially the same foundational principles that Agile has been running on in this kind of parallel universe, but it's always been specific to you know, software delivery methods. Breaking things down, incremental progress over time, testing to see what works, and then making an adjustment based on, oh, that didn't work as we'd hoped, or that wasn't in fact the right output. Etc. Tracker, which is, this is where you live now. I mean, I don't want us to get lost in, in the, the pivotal empire of it all. So Tracker is a product that was essentially incubated inside of Pivotal Labs. That's how it came to be born. Yeah, we built it as a, just a tool that we used ourselves because, um, you know, it just made things easier, right? It, it made everything more visible to the team that was building some product for a customer. And it obviously, it, I mean, it replaced just a manual way of doing what Tracker does today, which is representing the, the stories that we were working on, you know, this week and, and maybe the, the next week on a, on a wall, right, with a bunch of stickies. We just took that and said, okay, we need that, but in a, in a software version. And at the time, there was really nothing else like it and I think the main difference, and this also kind of goes back to your previous question of like, well, what is it that we, you know, sort of value, right, as Pivotal, like what is Agile to us? And I, and I think compared to what a lot of other teams do that, you know, we have observed or have experience with, is there is almost like a level, like we operate on a level below what is typical, even on other Agile projects or in other situations, like a lot of Scrum teams, right? Uh, a lot of Scrum projects, will break things down to a level of granularity where the at the lowest level that is at the lowest level of you know sort of collaboration as a wider team you're talking about some feature or some problem that may take days or weeks to to sort of make progress on to get to some closure to get feedback on we believe in going one level deeper or lower right and breaking those things that normally take a week or two into stories that take a day, right? So breaking the project down as, as the entire team, including the product manager, to a level where every single prioritized sort of item becomes something that can be completed in a day, right? Now, that process to get there is pretty hard. And it's, this is, I think, the biggest kind of learning challenge for people new to our team uh, or other teams at Pivotal, um, especially product managers who are used to operating at a different level of granularity, where we, we kind of see an opportunity, we maybe are talking about a feature that we're building for a customer because we know it's going to solve a problem. We've broken it down to these really coarse-grained chunks, and then we sort of give that to the development team, or that's how it's normally done. And then two weeks later, you know, you get to see that big thing built, you get to provide feedback. For us, that's not enough, right? The feedback loop around that is too short. And so we, as an entire team, including the PM, the product manager, break it down to instead of having like one feature that the team is working on for a week, we have a dozen stories, right? And so Tracker came out of the need to, to operate at this lower level of, or this finer level of granularity because it got really hard with the stickies and the, the cards on the wall, right? Because every single feature, every single you know project that, that we had in play would end up just going through like dozens and dozens and dozens of these cards. And like every day you would discover a new one because we were all operating at a level of detail that, that was great. It uncovered all the assumptions early, right? We learned a lot from the conversations uh, through the attempts to break things down to these finer grade uh, incremental stories. But 
it got really hard to manage, right? And so we needed a tool that made it easier to manage a backlog at that level of granularity where like you're really getting into the details and you have this shared visibility at that level of detail and it didn't bog down in, you know, like every new story that you had to add took five steps because you had to go to some other page and then you had to go to another page to like, you know, make a change. So the intent was just a simple, shared, very visible to-do list, but like at a very fine grain of, or fine level of granularity. So that's essentially what we built. We built this like super high grain to-do list that was easy to collaborate around and that was visible to everyone and, and where everyone had the same understanding and the same view of what was in that to-do list, right? Because it drove the execution. And so that's the super long answer to your story is like how did Tracker began, right? right? Like and why did we build it? It was essentially that. It was nothing else like it. And that fine, like that fine grained level of collaboration is something that is pretty hard to support unless you, you know, really sort of embrace that and build a tool specifically for it. I think the person who was tasked with manually writing all these micro stories onto cue cards was probably the the true uh, gene inception point of Pivotal. It's like how can we make it so that I don't have to write with my hand anymore? It's cramping. Up. Actually, you're absolutely right. It was. And that person, his name is Alex, Alex Chafee, uh, was sort of like acting as that PM in the room for the customer. <laughs> and I think he did get tired of writing all those, all those uh, little notes. So he wrote it. He actually wrote the first sort of like prototype of it. Um, I think it took like a week or two. And then we actually started using it. And it just made his job easier. And I think that parallels a lot of how we're you know, trying to work these days. And, you know, I really believe in that as a, as a way to build product, right? When you have the opportunity is solving a problem that's very near and dear to you, right? Like if you have a problem and you can solve that well, like that's a great way to validate something, right? And we, over the years as the tracker team, um, you know, we maybe sort of went away from that a little bit as we became a, a product for the masses or for the, you know, the wider uh, community, we had to start making prioritization decisions and product decisions based on you know what the market needed or what our sort of customers in the aggregate were telling us and you know maybe some of the the ways that we solve problems or some of the problems that we ended up solving with the product they weren't quite as dear to us and so there we had to engage in a lot more of the you know the the normal kind of customer validation or product validation with you know research and, and prototypes etc but it's really great when you have the opportunity to to solve your own problems right i mean it used to be called dog fooding now it's you know drinking your own champagne and that sounds that's a called. much nicer it's a much nice way of saying it but it, it's essentially it's the same thing right if you can solve your own problems and your problems are you know, they're not super unique where only you have them, in which case, you know, you're just building an internal tool. But if, if it's something that you can help sort of model, like this is how we work, you know, we think there's an opportunity out there because lots of other people have the same problem. And if we can, you know, solve that problem for ourselves and then, you know, then it's a good basis for, for something that will, you know, do well out there in the market because you've, you've had that level of validation. And so we're coming back around um, and as we look toward taking tracker into the future, right? There's obviously a lot of opportunity there, especially around supporting like the modern grown-up balanced team with more, you know, specialized roles. How do you how do you support such a team, you know, into the future? Well, the good thing is that we have a lot of the problems that every other grown-up 
cross-functional team at scale when you have 30, 40 people across multiple teams all working on the same product. And so it's great because we get to solve these problems again and we get to sort of like go back to where, you know, Tracker began and, and you know, drive it from internal need, right, as if we were just a consultancy building a tool for our own needs. But, but have this larger impact you know, with the product because there's this large audience. Okay, so let me just kind of package up what I've heard you say so far and, and then come back into to Tracker more specifically. So the first step was how do we go from large, ske- uh, large scale teams into smaller scale teams? That was the first sort of um, adjustment is being more effective when we work in smaller groups. And then that same mentality of kind of reducing in the form of, of stories. So what I think I heard from you is what, what we sometimes refer to as epics, which is most of the time when we sit down to write a user story as a product manager or product owner, we start with what we think is the smallest thing and then we actually discover, oh wait, this is 19 jobs sort of rolled up into what sounds like a succinct statement. You know, as a user, I wanna be able to view reports so that I can see my company data sounds articulate sounds like a user story inside of that there might be 10 different kinds of reports a bunch of database level updates that that are required so is that specifically what you're talking about is instilling this idea of taking a bigger story and then learning how to unpack it into smaller bits yeah and i think it it actually kind of it shows up on multiple levels like it isn't just like that one level where we're talking about you know, as a user, I want to be able to do so that, and then breaking that that down into smaller pieces. I mean, that's that's one of the that's like one of the the challenges is how do you go from that to the the smaller pieces, right? Like if you look at I don't know a bicycle, like you say, ah, well, you know, there should be a bicycle. As a user, I should be able to jump on a bicycle so I can go to the store and get some milk, right? It's like yeah, okay. But there's nothing right now. Like, what is the very first thing that we can imagine? Right. Like, what is that? you know, minimum like desirable feature or viable feature that will get us to the store, but without all the the bells and whistles, right? Because if you imagine a bicycle, there's like a lot of stuff going on there. Does all of it have to be there? Actually, no, right? So breaking down the the process of of the bicycle coming to be is really interesting because you you get to make all these, you know, you, you get to ask questions about, you know, assumptions and like evaluate things like whether there needs to be a bell, right? Like each of these things is an opportunity to, to reduce scope. So you can actually get to releasing something interesting that, that you get quality feedback on earlier, right? So the decomposition becomes a lot of what we do. And I think that's that's where there's a lot of opportunity to learn um, and home skills over time as a product manager, right? Like going from the understanding that they're like a bicycle is an opportunity to solve some market or customer problem. Like that's great. Like we need to get there, obviously. How do we validate that before doing anything? That's a big part of what a PM does. But then, you know, once you've you've done or you have some level of validation, you know, maybe it's through a prototype or through some paper, you know, experiments, through some interviews, right? Like at some point, you're like, okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna build a bicycle as our product, right? But that's not where it ends. And I think for a lot of you know people out there in the industry and a lot of product managers, like it sometimes does end there, right? It's like, okay, great team build this bicycle okay and let me know when you've done it i'll give it you know i'll take it for a ride and if i like it then i'm going to say cool we're done and we're going to ship this thing right that's like but they you could then spend months on like just kind of that great we're building a bicycle how close are we wow we're about 80 percent of down are we going to make this date i think so maybe right there's just a lot of like tension 
that happens because a lot of the interesting stuff happens in the like in the detail, right? And so you can imagine like breaking down the the bicycle into like you know thirty or forty individual stories that start with like you know there is a frame, okay? We can see a frame. Okay, great. Now there are like two wheels, and you can roll the frame on the two wheels, and then you start introducing things like brakes and you know handlebars and and the bell. Um, but every one of those is an opportunity to ask like, is this really necessary, right? And can we can we get some feedback on this, you know, more in isolation as a as a small piece rather than the whole thing? So I think that's. For me, that's like really enjoyable, and I, I I spend a lot of my time still picking that things sort of apart. things, like picking things <laughs> apart, right? Because you just find so much you know opportunity in that picking apart. It's the conversation, right? It's like you realize people are making different assumptions when you get into that little detail. You know, one thing that that has I guess evolved over the years in the agile community is this question of whether we should be estimating stories as we break them down with the team, right? And that's always a you know a good topic to like for debates and you know one of the things that has happened is you know some some teams some some people out there have, have kind of latched onto estimates as like a terrible thing to do because because managers misuse it and people start gaming it once you start putting numbers or any kind of like metrics around how long something might take in advance uh, we've always seen it a, a different way for us it's always just been an opportunity to have a conversation around something right so you've broken you've you've broken things down to small pieces now you can ask questions about each of the pieces. You can ask questions like, how complex is this, right? And estimating as a team, in particular as a team, is when the assumptions get uncovered, right? Because if different people estimate you know, something wildly different on the same team about one of these smaller chunks that you've decomposed, it means they're making an assumption that's different from the assumption that someone else is making, right? great, let's have a conversation about that. And it turns out that you're making the wrong assumption or the other person is making the wrong assumption. So now we can actually clarify and and get our assumptions on the same page so that we, because obviously the cost of discovering that now is much lower than it would be you know, downstream once you've actually built something, right? So, so it's about the small pieces, it's about the decomposition. But as a PM, you obviously don't want to lose sight of like, well, why are we here? What is the big picture? Where are we going, right? What's our vision? Um, why are we doing this oh, for our customers? For what problem, right? And so, you know, being a PM today, from my perspective, it's hard on multiple levels, right? A, because you're bringing like all these different sort of disciplines together, you know, to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And because you, you're constantly having to, to switch modes and or the levels that you're operating at, right? Like, are you thinking strategically? Yes, but 10 minutes from now, I have an iteration planning meeting, right? Where I have to like, like all the way down to that like lowest level of granularity. And it's such a huge, you know, distance between that and, you know, where you have to spend the morning, right? On a, on a typical day, but it's like really interesting. I think that's actually the real skill to hone over time is being able to constantly switch uh, perspectives and, and levels of, you know, where you're operating. Yeah, well, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, user stories is a unit of granularity that, you know, when I'm in Tracker, I, I use Tracker at the Development Factory, and when I'm in Tracker and I'm writing stories or I'm writing acceptance criteria, like, I'm in it. But if I get pulled out for an afternoon or a day or, or frankly, in my, in my circumstance, usually a week or two, yeah. and then I have to come back into it, it takes my brain a while to remember how to think at that level and, and this is a theme that comes up a lot on our shows I think PMs do struggle because you get you can be really really in one or the other but being in both or being fluid enough to go between both as you describe is for sure a challenge 
I want to ask you in particular about acceptance criteria because so one of the things you're describing is well you're talking about a lot of really important things so I want to highlight them number one you know in agile we talk about individuals and interactions right and this idea that coming together in a discussion can yield a lot of important insights and eliminate assumptions even between just two or three team members oh you were thinking there was going to be a Facebook share button I, I didn't think it was going to be oh great well I'm glad we got on the same page about that do you advocate for product managers or product owners to own a significant amount of the writing of acceptance criteria as part of bringing a ticket into the backlog? Or do you advocate for that to be kind of co-created in you know, individual sessions? How does that come alive best in, in your experience? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. This comes up a lot. In fact, we, I don't want to say struggle with it. So when I say we, it means like we, the tracker team, which is like 30-ish people, you know, multiple kind of sub teams working together, multiple PMs, we have a few exploratory testers, we have multiple designers, we have, you know, 20 something engineers. So so the we or my current experience or perspective is is from that. And so going back to the question, acceptance criteria, this comes up a lot. It comes up in a lot of our retros. It's like stories that were not clear enough. Or maybe where it starts is stories or like a team or project or some epic that we worked on were like we had a pretty high rejection rate and we, we can track that because it's in tracker you can like look at metrics and rejection rate means you know high cycle time meaning the story was just like going back and forth back and forth back and forth for you know a week or two weeks which is like really bad and so we get into well why did that happen oh because there's some like lack of clarity on the story right you know the PM prioritized it maybe they're working with one of our testers and the tester was kind of more in the forefront of like making sure it works because the PM happened to be busy in some planning meetings or whatever even though they should have been like right there at the, <laughs> as part of acceptance but you know it happens right when you have multiple people involved so it goes back to well should we have more formal acceptance criteria on every story right and where it always ends up is well it depends it depends on the PM but where it also goes is well if you look at those stories that had that lack of clarity you know they're pretty big stories it turns out like yeah they might have been estimated as a two or three so we didn't really think it was like a huge story but it turned out there was some room for interpretation and so then it goes back to the question of well, what is a story? Should it be like this formal requirement that captures like every single detail right up front? Well, sure, if you can if you can make that always be true, if you know every single detail, then great. Why not capture it? Maybe in the form of acceptance criteria. But if you have that much to like hold in your head or there's that much to like, you know, capture, then maybe that story is a little bit too big. Right. And so a lot of times the answer is we'll just break the stories down a little bit more. So each one is pretty simple. It accomplishes or the intent is singular, right? So as a user, I can do blah because whatever. Great. One thing, right? Every story should have like one thing that it brings to the table as far as moving the product forward. In that case, it turns out that acceptance criteria is pretty redundant. It's like you can look at it and go like, yes, I understand the intent of this. I understand what we're trying to do. Oh, look, there's a little mock-up on the story. There's a design. Do we need acceptance criteria? I guess when you break things down to that, you know, ideal, lots of small stories, I feel personally that acceptance criteria is like nice, but it almost shouldn't be necessary, right? It should be clear from the story. Then there's also this, this 
this mindset or this perspective that the stories are like evolving conversations, right? And so if it's going to be an evolving conversation, how can you possibly capture everything that is to be, you know, known and, and, and verified when it's complete at the beginning, right? You can't because it's an evolving story. So I think, again, it kind of goes back to like, you're a small team, you should be having a ton of communication around everything, right? Like you have a stand up every morning, you know, you're physically connected in some way, whether you're sitting right next to each other or you're on Slack and you can, you know, or even just in track or mention each other all the time. And if there's any confusion around what it means to accept a story, like, great, let's have a conversation about it. And also, by the way, it should be the same person that wrote the story accepting it, right? And so do I need acceptance criteria for myself to, to verify what I'm going to do or to tell me what I'm going to do to verify the story when it's done? No, because A, I broke everything down. I have this mental model of where you know, the stories are, what they represent. I have to make sure that the rest of the team has that same understanding. So to that end, you know, maybe it's not acceptance criteria. It's just being super clear, right? right? Breaking it down so they're small and then each one just be super clear and then be available, right? If there are any questions, like just mention me on Slack and I'll be literally like, you know, in the middle of, I don't know, like getting on the train or whatever, like walking somewhere or driving, right? And in one hand is my phone, of course, at a red light, driving at a red light, (laughs) right? And I will just reply like, yep, that's it or no, or we'll just jump on, you know, hang out or Zoom. So, so for me, actually, now that I realize this whole question of like, you just, you just solved it for acceptance right criteria is like this, you know, it's like the pin, it's like the tip of an iceberg of lots of, uh, you know, conversation around process. Really. I think you're going to so. issue a company-wide memo tomorrow. And you say, I had no this epiphany. Exactly. It, we're, there's no longer acceptance criteria. But you know what got me thinking hearing you speak about it? And I think this is an, potentially an interesting um, inflection point because it also speaks to the pivotal or the tracker customer base. So part of that trust that you're referring to comes from working with the same team on the same product over time. I mean, Pivotal is, our tracker rather is a number of years old and you know, I'm sure people have come and gone and there is, we know what it looks like more or less, except for when we're introducing new elements. We know who our customers are more or less, except for when we're going through a new phase in the adoption life cycle. And so some of the details that you might typically introduce uh, into acceptance criteria don't need to be there because there is already a strong foundation of what the product is. But let's look by contrast at a scenario like mine at a company like the Development Factory or even Pivotal Labs who as an outside consultancy is working with an outside client on maybe a new product or a product that isn't going to be there for a long time and now there's these other unknown elements what is this product how should it look and and new questions that need to be so so maybe it just speaks to well you said it depends that's the official product management answer but there is i think a a different kind of challenge that uh third-party product management teams have that changes when you're part of a a, an in-house team for a specific product yeah i absolutely agree and i i think it's uh the, in, the, it, the it depends answer applies, you know, here as it does in every other, um, you know, part of this conversation. But I, I do think there's there's some emphasis on on things that you know should or can happen outside of like 
once you're at the point of writing stories and actually writing some code or building the, the product that can go a long way to create that, that maybe shared context and or understanding, you know, whether it's about who the customer is or, you know, about the, like, the, the nature of the product or what problems we're trying to solve here, right? And, and I think sometimes that, that can get a little bit overlooked or we rush to like, okay, we've got our, you know, we know what we want to build, here's the stories, let's, let's go write some code. And then, you know, you lead to, or it might lead to a lot of questions or a lot of that shared context that, that could have been established, you know, earlier on in some way, right? I know a lot of labs or pivotal labs projects still, I think all actually, start with this establishing of a common language and shared understanding and having some process around that, right? Whether it's a consulting engagement with a new customer or something more in-house, right? Or a kind of evolution of existing product, it goes a long way, right? At labs, they call that process that they do, I mean, it's it's called an inception, right? And that could be a multi-day, sometimes a week-long um, experience of getting everyone who's going to be involved on the project into like literally the same room and immersing that entire team, that group of people, into the problem space such that when you come out of it, you feel like there is a connection, right? You understand the goals of the project, you understand you know, the, the personas that are relevant to the, to the product or the project that you're, you know, the, the, the software that you're building. And it's a lot of techniques for doing that these days, right? Like building out personas and, and, and having them be very visible and shared with everyone, right? Like you really can connect to Suzanne, the product manager, and, and kind of get yourself into this mindset that we are solving problems for her. We understand her. We Am understand I a persona her. tracker? You know what? I would I, like to be. I, I think we'll, we'll make sure you are one. We're going to put you on the wall and say, right. this is our number one. Um, no, but I think there's just, there's many different ways, like whether it's building personas or doing these like story mapping style inceptions where you're breaking the, pro the, the project down together as a tomb, right? So you're not just doing that as one or two people ahead of that shared, you know, project experience and you bring in like developers and designers later, like you start with them. Right. Now, it's hard to, you know, sometimes it's hard to do that in practice because getting everyone that will be involved on a project into the same room for multiple days, like that can be a pretty expensive proposition, right? Because, you know, you can't build maybe for some of that time for some of them because your customer is not going to pay for all 12 people sitting in a room, right, for a week just soaking it up. But I think there's just so much value there. And I, if I was, you know, that customer, I would certainly pay for all 12 people being in the room for a week because I would understand that the, that shared understanding that comes out of that right, makes a huge difference, I think, downstream, right, where you can then act like a more, you know, connected, gelled team, and you don't have to, like, explain every little thing at every step of the way in the form of, you know, for example, acceptance criteria right. down the road. No, I, I mean, for sure, I'm glad you bring up personas or foundational documents. I mean, one of the ways that so many companies struggle is when you have to start onboarding new team members, if you don't have places for globally shared understanding, then everybody always has to be brought back to the beginning. So an inception meeting, if it's the kickoff of, of a project or, or an initial product idea, and then foundational reference documents that are there. And, and maybe part of the answer is how much of this acceptance criteria is global and could be pushed to a more global understanding versus how much is unique to this story. But there are other challenges that it raises, right? One is, you know, 
it, you brought up this idea of cost and maybe clients not wanting to pay. I mean, in this increasingly commoditized landscape, a lot of people approach product with a project mindset, meaning I want to give you a fixed amount of money for a fixed amount of time and I want a fixed amount of output. And so when that mindset is there, everything else becomes a problem because how do you explain this idea of iterations? How do you explain this idea of continuous improvement? You know, those two things are incongruous. And I think even Tracker, you know, it began as a project, right? Well, it began as a, a solution to hand cramping and then it, it was sort of adopted, but there is an adjustment between, well, now we have this thing and, oh, we have to build on top of it and learn. And sometimes that means doing the work over how can you speak to that a little bit this project versus product mindset yeah absolutely and i think uh it would benefit all of us if we just banned the word project <laughs> you know from uh most situations and and i think here it's somewhat you know we're the conversation here i think is a little bit about like you know we are providing a service as a consultancy right like let's say we're kind of in that situation and how do we approach these these you know engagements with with our customers right and you know we could probably apply that to internal you know products within larger organizations too like there's always some customer or some stakeholder right and they have some expectations in mind and yeah i think there's too much kind of imagining or like thinking of these these artifacts that we're setting out to build or these problems we're trying to solve as these like very finite projects, right? The word project implies that there's like some finite, you know, there's some finite aspect to it, you know, whether it's like a date like by which we're going to be done and the, the, the thing that we built is going to be complete, right? Which, you know, these days, like, can you really say that about anything to do with software, right? Like, is any piece of software really ever complete, right? It's complete in the sense that we've maybe stopped working on it or we've stopped paying our, our consultancy or our team to, to do any more work on it. But you know, if we, if we think of it as a product, what is a product? Product is about solving some problem, right? For somebody who's willing to pay you money for it, right? Like it's a, um, it's a, there's, a there's demand for it and, and there are customers, they have real problems. All of that will evolve. Your customers' needs will, will evolve over time, right? You give them the first version of your product that you're building and they're going to say, ah, that's great. Now I'll give you some feedback about why the problem, that you haven't solved my problem, right? So now you have to keep going because you have to actually solve the problem because you haven't yet. Or they'll say, that's great, you've solved my problem, but now I have this other problem that you <laughs> solved, right? Like you sort of open the door and you keep opening doors and keep opening doors. It's not just like problems, it's also opportunities, right? Like you you know, solve something in the market and that creates more opportunities for you. So you have to keep going, right? So if you don't keep going, somebody else will and they will displace you, right? Competition. So I think just having this mindset that what we are building is for the long haul and it's more like we're providing, to, we're continuing to provide a service, right? That service has to keep, you know, sort of like aligning to where the, the needs are. And so it has to just keep going. And I think that mindset needs to apply to both like the, the code that we're writing, right? That code has to be malleable and sustainable and people have to be able to come and go and new developers have to be hired into it so they have to make sense of it, they have to keep it going, right? We're not just building something, throwing it over the wall. And then kind of back to the, the sort of product management aspect of it, right? At Pivotal Labs, we you know struggled with this at the beginning because the natural tendency or most clients uh, would have preferred 
or perhaps the norm was and may still be, scoping the project to something finite and, and, and agreeing to what it's going to deliver and when, right? So basically having it all. Um, <laughs> and you, you can't, right? Like you don't want to be in the hook to, to build something that has a bunch of unknown, there's an unknown element to it, right? You're going to discover so much detail as you go. And they wanted, you know, fixed bid kind of contracts where we agreed to how much we're going to charge them and we're going to give them all of the things that they are asking for in some document. Right. And as soon as you get into it, a week or two later, you realize like most of what was in that document doesn't make any sense because you've learned now, right? You've learned some things by actually starting to build and start to get feedback and it's invalidated everything else that was in there. Or it turns out that there's a bunch of other stuff that wasn't even considered as part of the document. So we made a point of never agreeing to you know, fixed bid projects and everything was about creating that trust on day one, that relationship, that mindset that, hey, we're going to learn a lot here, right? We don't know where this is going to end up. I know you have this idea of like, this is the thing that you want to build and you want to launch it on this date and this is what's going to happen when you launch it. But this is just your, this is a hypothesis, right? And maybe we weren't using the term hypotheses a lot back then because it sort of got introduced later as part of the, the lean culture. But everything is just a hypothesis. We don't know anything, right? We just have these assumptions about what may happen. If you do this, if you build this feature, then your customers are going to pay you more money or do something else. Like maybe, or maybe you're completely wrong because you have no idea how people will behave until you actually put real product in front of them. So let's just get into a mindset that we are providing a service here. We're, we're, we're going to join hands here. We're going to start, you know, learning by building right and shipping and and getting feedback and looking at whatever you know kpis or metrics or numbers that that are important to us and based on that we're going to make new decisions and we're going to keep doing this we're going to keep doing this as long as you want us to keep doing this so you pay for our time we are going to be fully transparent about you know what we're working on where we are i mean this is where tracker comes in because once you get everything broken down into like super fine grained detail and like actual stories it starts to make everything very concrete and one of the reasons we have these things called release markers and tracker right like basically the way it works is you range your stories in whatever order you think makes sense then you put this little line it's a blue line you know at the point where that has some some meaning to you like oh we want to do some kind of a demo here or we want to ship something here mm -hmm. great so we've done that we've broken everything down together now we have this shared trust because like we worked through the problem with you right you being the customer you know, we being there or I being the developer, we took the time, we, we spent a few days in a room, we broke everything down, we arranged it in a backlog, we, like some trust came out of just doing that because it kind of shows that I understand what you are asking for, we, we talked it through, we broke it down, great, now we have, it we have our first backlog, we're starting to move through it, and then we, we realize something, or you as a customer realizes like, oh, but I also want it to be blue when I click on this button in the corner, but not when it's Tuesday. It's like, okay, let's think about that. that that's, that's great, we'll write a story for that. You know, we'll have a conversation about how complex that might be you know, through the estimation. Now let's drag it into the backlog. Oh, look, it pushed that release marker down. Why did it go down? Because you just added more scope, right? And normally, if that's a conversation, right? It's just a conversation, like it ends up being this like, somewhat controversial or like this sort of confrontational, it has the potential to be confrontational, like, come on, I just, I, I want you to do this one feature. I know it wasn't in spec, but it was implied by the spec, right? Clearly, you should just do it. It's like, yeah, well, that's gonna cost us more money. It's gonna take longer. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. You should just do it. You do it in Tracker, like at least you, you, you make it very concrete, but breaking it down, 
you, you, you together, you drag that story in, you see the, the, the line move down because you've added scope, and it changes the conversation, right? You're like, oh, you're right. I, I see that that would be a problem because we've just increased the scope, so maybe we should take something else out, right? Like, as soon as you kind of get into the habit of working in some way, and it doesn't have to be with Tracker, just like make it as, quality, as quantitative as possible, like make a list of cards and say, okay, you just added, you just increased the size of this pile, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a trade-off between scope and time. We can focus on getting this done in a certain amount of time, but all we have to do is take a few cards out, right? Drag a few stories down. And like you start getting into the habit of doing this all the time every day with your customer, right? Again, more trust, more transparency around everything. And then it becomes like, it's just a, this working relationship where we're always having conversations like this, right? And we're constantly making decisions about how to stay on the right path, right? If if making a date is really dear to us, then we'll we'll just manage scope so that we can, you know, get to that date. Or if we don't care about the date as much and we care about the most delightful product when we do launch, then let's focus on having the right features. But we're gonna keep finding opportunities to, you know, have that conversation every day. Right. Well I love so, this, you know, idea of banning the the project mindset. And I think that it also perfectly complements something that you said you know, sort of earlier, which is the importance, uh, or that you've been saying all along, frankly, which is this kind of importance of decomposing or, or subtracting in something. And so the nice benefit is when you can get somebody to embrace the idea of let's go from the bottom up, especially if dollars and cents are involved, say it's actually to your benefit. Because if I can achieve the business objective or the user objective with one third of the effort to deliver this feature, that's money back in your pocket. And and it almost never works out, you know, having worked in certainly with fixed cost projects for many years, it almost never works out in your favor to have to force a fixed cost from the outset as, as a client because, well, then the developer has to provision for every possible permutation and all of these things that say, look, trust is a big important part of it, you're right. And transparency that you're describing here. And, and that's one of the things that I think is so great about using, whether it's a tool like Tracker and you know there are others, there's Jira and there's Trello and Mural and they all have their own sort of different value proposition. But I think it brings transparency to the process. People get relieved when they can just see in. It's no longer a black box. It's, oh, here's where we are, here's where we're stuck, here's where testing needs to happen and suddenly everybody is is part of that process together it's true um, but i think it requires like a certain commitment from everyone right to be involved enough right because sometimes you know you're working with a customer that just doesn't really have the the time or the you know the luxury of of making this this commitment to spend enough time with you to go through that, you know, decomposition and to operate and work with you at that level of detail that requires, you know, them to be involved more. In, in, in which case it's tough because, you know, they have limited time and so they can only operate, you know, in, in this, this form where they'll capture the high level intent or like, this is our product that we want now, here you go, go do it. In which case, like, that's fine. We just have to, you know, embrace maybe a different kind of relationship there. And they have to put somebody that they trust in the position of working with you, you know, and spending more time and, and being involved in that, that level of detail that's required to, 
you know, to operate the way that we, we think is more ideal. Before we wrap up, I just want to take us through a segment we do on the show. It's called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. And I'm, I'm looking to you, our audience is looking to you for your wisdom. You know, you've been doing this for a long time. You came up as a developer. You've played an integral part in building, you know, a company. You've been a, a product lead product manager. How do you get a job as a product manager? How do you stand out in a stack of resumes? How do you convince somebody to give you a chance? Uh, That's a good question. And uh, I actually can answer that, I guess, from my current position of having to go through, you know, stacks of resume, I mean, virtually, and and looking for ones that, that stand out. I'll tell you what doesn't stand out for me, some things that come to mind, you know, seeing resumes that are extremely dense and filled with like every, you know, acronym and, and buzzword uh, you can possibly fit onto it. I think those just immediately go, you know, somewhere other than where you would <laughs> like them to go. I think like, you know, it's a combination of having a story that, that goes with your experience and usually the cover letters where there is a bit of a story, right? So like seeing that somebody took the time to, to just kind of show some clarity around, you know, why they're interested in this particular position, right? Why are they a product? Like what is interesting about product management, right? And, and tie that to something in our world. And these are just like basic, like, you know, you're looking for a job, like take the time to, to invest in something personal that actually connects your experience and what you bring to the table in terms of your skills with what the given company is looking for or something about them in terms of the culture. I mean, Pivotal is pretty well known out there. I mean, you can, you know, Google it and quickly find like, hey, what matters to us? Like, we're all about teams. We're all about collaboration, right? Like, as as teams, you know, we're really into pairing and test driving. You know, we're into we're into products because we, we do a lot of products, but there's just so much out there. Like, if you're applying it for a job at Pivotal, as an example, like, just do a little bit of homework and say, hey, I am interested in Pivotal because I really, I'm really excited by your relentless focus on like small cross-functional teams and making those teams be like really, you know, happy and productive. And we're also like into a very sustainable kind of like way of working, right? Where like everybody goes home at five and we eat breakfast together. There's like a social aspect to it. So, and again, like every company is different, but every company has some kind of a cultural differentiator to it, or there's something about it that makes it a little bit different or tries to be different, right? Like find out, right? And then what is what does it mean to be a product manager to you, right? So if I'm, you know, talking to the person applying, like, because PMing is such a broad skill set these days, and like people come to it from all different angles, right? Like some were a developer, and then they sort of found their way into product management, or maybe they started marketing, or, you know, just business, um, maybe design. Actually, we're seeing a lot more of that now. Designers, moving into product management. I kind of want to see a story, right? That's what I'm interested in. It's like, where did you come from and why? Like, how did you become a PM and why, right? Because, you know, some people just kind of like stumble into it. Well, I became a PM because nobody was doing it. It seemed like there was this stuff that had to be done that, you know, was about like making prioritization decisions and like, you know, getting it. It sounds like it was your story. (laughs) Maybe, (laughs) but I want the story, right? Like the story I think is important about how you got there because it's always interesting, right? And if there is no story, like I almost have to like wonder, like you can't, you can't just like be a PM. You didn't go to school and become a product manager. Like how did you become a PM? Because, you know, with the exception, I think like General Assembly and maybe a few, you know, CS uh, programs out there, like product, product management is still like this, it's like this new, you know, industry or it's a new kind of profession that 
and I think one of the, the problems is that we're using the same term as what something else used to be called. Like I feel like product management 10 years ago is something very different than what we're talking about today. Yeah. You know, product managers today are, it's a different kind of skill set. It's a different, you know, focus. We work differently. So I want to know how you got there. And, you know, partly because I'm curious, because I'm always interested in how people end up being product managers, right? And not just littering your resume with like, oh, this is everything I've ever done. And then they include all kinds of unrelated jobs, like marketing, 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 product management. Just blow out the PM piece, right? Like talk to me about how you build something. And, you know, having that as experience, like you've actually brought something to into existence. Like you've actually, you know, brought a product in and you made product decisions. You weren't just a project manager that, you know, took on a product title because you're building a product, but at the end of the day, all you were doing day to day is project management. And I think having a clear understanding of what product management versus project management is, is also very helpful because I think there's some confusion out there as to what a, you know, product person actually does versus project. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if anybody out there is listening and is interested in getting a job with Dan and the team at Tracker, just write in your cover letter, number one, I think we should ban the word project from the <laughs> vocabulary. Probably come right into a second interview. Right. Well, it'll go to a different pile at least. <laughs> okay, what about um, just blind spots or, or areas where you either you yourself have, have failed in your career or learned lessons the hard way or where you see some of your PMs typically struggle? Well, I know I have a lot of uh, learning the hard way with, uh, you know, kind of latching on to my idea of what, you know, needs to be built as far as like a feature or which feature or how the feature should work. Because, you know, you really get sort of wrapped up in your own product, right? And, you know, for us, it's it's nice because we use our product on a, a daily basis. I mean, like, we build a product that we use all the time. So we have that luxury. And maybe especially in, in cases like that, like, you get pretty passionate about what, you know, you think you should build for your product that your customers and users will also, you know, want or they'll want it in the same form. And... You know, we've I've learned, and so have others on my team, and and you know teams around us that like you just you can't you have to let go of the passion. I mean, I think there's a balancing act of like having some vision, and this is what we struggle with because some people are more intuitive and have this sense of like, you know, where the product should go and what it should and shouldn't do, and then there's those that are just very like, no, show me data, right? right. Let's prove it, right? And I feel like I I tend to be more on the on the on the former side, like the. I kind of just have a sense and I tend to, I look for the, the validating pieces of info that reinforce where I think it should go. And I think the ideal is somewhere in between because the opposite is also maybe not as ideal. And, and look, we've learned because we built some big features over time that like, nah, maybe didn't quite get the results that we were looking for, right? Or we, we went too far with it without, you know, before we got the real validation of like, okay, it's out there, let's watch the metrics. Oh, only 7% of our users are using this on a, on a weekly or daily basis, right? Well, it would have been good to know that early. But I do think that you, you miss on something if you are just nothing but like data-driven and completely objective because maybe sometimes you do have to go a little further to like, I don't know, get some delight out there, get people excited and like kind of maybe solve problems in ways that, you know, might be a little bit interesting or unique, right? So I've always struggled with like, well, what's the right balance of that? Like how much of the intuition, how much of the vision do you bring to the table versus like let, you know, only data drive you and make decisions for you. So 
you know, I think it's something that you have to experience, and I think we all have different personalities, right? And I think it's good to combine opposing or perspectives. Where on our team, you know, we have a PM that's that's very sort of like skeptical and like show me the data or I don't believe <laughs> you, right? And we have also the opposite, and that's also true on our design team, right? So I think just having the right kind of balance of these perspectives together is a good answer. For me, I will probably continue to relearn some of the same lessons, but I'm at least wiser to the, you know, the consequences of when I do choose to go down a more of an intuitive or, you know, sort of that fuzzier path rather than being super objective about it. Yeah, no, I, I say a lot that the, the better we get as product people, the more at risk we are for making the mistakes that we shouldn't make as product people because we go straight to the solution or we, I know what you were talking about a little bit there is falling in love with our own solutions or losing sight of the the critical eye. What what do you love about it? You know, what keeps you in the game? I I think it's, well, one thing that that will always keep me in the game is is kind of the team aspect of it and, and being part of this like, this gelled, like tight nib, almost like a family. Like you are in it together, right? You have this sort of shared experience constantly. You know, for us or for me, just seeing so many people out there use our product on a, on a daily basis and like, yeah, I mean, it has its challenges and it could be, you know, doing things in a much better way than, than it does in, in some, some regards. But, you know, we still get a lot of positive feedback. And, and every time there is a piece of feedback, like, hey guys, I really enjoyed using your product. It really helped us, you know, with, with this and that. Like, that's just great. Like we feel like we're, you know, making a difference to, to you know, somebody out there. Um, and the fact that they're using our product to build other products is, is really rewarding. It's kind of like this meta thing, right? It's like, you know, my, our success, if, if there is the success of some other thing out there that was used, you know, that was built using our product, which is great. And, you know, just kind of seeing things come to life. And it's frustrating sometimes because things take long, right? And especially on a mature product or a product that already has a lot of things going on, like, Progress is measured in, you know, usually months, right? Like, it's hard to just like, ta-da, we're just gonna add this new feature and boom, it's out there and like people love it. Like, it all has to work with what's already there, right? There's a lot of complexity, you know, here in the code base in terms of other features. And just kind of seeing things, you know, make it out there and, and getting that feedback and, and seeing, you know, my team visibly proud of something that they've done like that's really rewarding for me too right so all these things i think that just kind of come together that's a cool insight it's like a tracker is in the dna of every successful software product that's a good line that you we should have put that on our marketing site. I'll tell positioning them, I'll, statement. I'll tell our marketing team. <laughs> Great having you. Thanks, Suzanne. This is this is fun. I look forward to more sessions like this in the future. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please help us get discovered by leaving a five-star rating and review right from your podcast app. Our mission is to help you excel at product management. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great free resources to help you on your path, including all of the recommendations from our fabulous guests week over week. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. We'll be back next week with an all new episode.